Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. When people think of world hunger, one often sees images of refugee camps or famines in Africa or war zones like in Yemen. But hunger is, while dependent on climate and weather trends, most often controlled, if not engineered, by human design, or at the least could be ameliorated by human intervention. Food is often weaponized in military warfare and economic and political strategies, Venezuela being a good recent example of what political food wars look like in a completely urban citizenry area. Today in America, 25% of our children don't know where their next meal is coming from. Hunger has many faces. Joining us this hour is a gentleman who has spent his lifetime trying to solve issues of world hunger, the ever-increasing likelihood of a man-made global famine, and why all of this can be intelligently avoided and hunger eradicated on Earth. Our guest is Dr. Eric Holt Jimenez, Executive Director of Food First Institute for Food and Development Policy, based in Oakland, California. He is the author of a recently released book, Can We Feed the World Without Destroying It?, which I learned about from our favorite magazine, Acres USA. Thank you so much for joining us, Eric. Well, thank you very much for having us. Well, it's a pleasure. And I thought your interview with Acres USA was just so inspiring. You said in that interview, quote, how we produce and consume determines how our society is organized, unquote, and that, quote, our present food system actually causes chronic hunger and environmental destruction by overproducing food, unquote. That is not a statement you will often hear in any place. No, it isn't. And I... I admit I packed a lot into that sentence. Um, You know, the first thing is, I think that, I think we've lost touch with the fact of how central our food system is to our society and to our planet. And in the United States, it's very easy to lose touch with our food because we have more people in prison than we have on the land, less than 2% of the population farms. So we're quite disconnected and even though there's this rousing food movement uh, going on, um, people don't really understand what it's like to farm. Very few. And certainly don't understand the pressures of farming 
over, you know, over the last two centuries. Um, and I think we've also been conditioned. So we've lost touch there because we've sort of been urban conditioned by our urban, largely urban existence. Um, and we've also been conditioned um, over the last hundred years or so to think that hunger and malnutrition is the result of scarcity. Right. Exactly. That's what's always promoted. Yeah. No, that's that's the mantra which mm-hmm. we hear over and over again. And as you uh, read in my quote there, um, in fact, modern day hunger is largely not the result of the lack of food, but it's the result of too much food. It's the result of overproduction. And overproduction is um, a characteristic of our farming system. And it's been around with us uh, pretty much since the founding of this country and it characterizes our food system. It's the reason we we waste 40% of our food. It's the reason we have confined animal feedlot operations where animals live, uh, you know, we have grain-fed livestock because we overproduce grain. Um, it's the reason why so many people are going hungry uh, around the world now. There's a larger explanation of why that's true, and I'm, I'm happy to get into that. Yeah, I would appreciate it because, you know, the perspective, I remember Frances Moore LePay's original book, Diet for a Small Planet, and she was the founder of the organization you're the executive director of. Is that right? Am I correct in that's remembering correct. that? That's correct. I stand on very tall soldiers. Yeah, exactly. And And so, you know, here we're four decades into this awareness and understanding, and it's gotten even more difficult to challenge. But yes, give us give us this big satellite view, and then we'll come down to the smaller, you know, localized reality in each of the countries. I mean, when I read in, in your interview that China, as an example, grows all its soy in South America because they don't want to use their water resources, it's better for them to have it grown somewhere else. Exactly. Um, so, so what, what do we hear? And this is very cyclical. I remember I heard this growing up. You probably heard it as well. You know, there are starving children and, you know, name the continent, Asia, Africa, uh, Latin America, you know, each clean up your plate, right, of course. On your plate uh, as if that would make a difference. Right. Um, but even today we hear that there are somewhere around a billion people in the world going hungry. That's one in seven. Now, there's a lot of people dispute that number a lot, but it's safe to say it's between one and two and a half billion people are going hungry or are malnourished around the world. Um, And we've been told, well, we've got to double our food production by 2050 or, you know, we're all going to die. Um, So what that fails to recognize is that, um, so we've got 7 billion people on the planet right now. By 2050, we'll have 12 billion. We imagine that population growth is going to level off by then. We already produce enough for 12 billion people today. And yet, at least one in seven are going hungry. So how is producing more food going to solve that problem? In the United States, the richest country in the world, we produce more than any other country in the world, one in seven people are food insecure here in this country. And most of those people are from rural areas 
and work in the food system. And globally, when we look at who's hungry in the world, well, it's farmers. It's poor farmers. And most of those farmers are women. So women produce most of the world's food. You know, we think it's big ag. It's not. Women produce most of the world's food. And these women are very poor and have very small parcels of land. But they're the ones feeding up to 70% of the world. They're also 70% of the world's hunger, hungry. Women and girls make up 70% of the world's hungry. So women and girls feed the world and then go hungry. Um, so, how, I mean, how does this happen? And how does this happen when we have tremendous overproduction um, in this country and, and certainly in Europe and many parts of the world, in Latin America, we're overproducing, which is why prices are so low to farmers. I mean, that's why prices are low. If, if we weren't overproducing, prices would be high. Well, what happens is that when farmers get low prices, particularly farmers in the global north, in, in capitalist countries like ours, um, if there's no controls on the market, if there's no controls over production, if there's no supply management, which is the situation today, mm -hmm. um, then farmers who have to go into debt in order to produce in the first place, tremendous upfront costs. Um, well, if the price is low, they've still got to pay back that debt. Right. So what do they do? They produce more. They try to farm their way out of debt. And, you know, you do that for two, three years, and then you're facing bankruptcy. Which is what happened to the farm system in this country because it got exactly. so the more you produce, top heavy. The, the more you produce, the lower the price on the market is going to be. So all this surplus production gets um, sent overseas through our, um, our aid programs, our food aid programs, PL480. Um, that surplus food is then introduced into these countries, and it is sold at prices which are below the cost of production, for farmers in those countries. Exactly. So our overproduction ends up driving those farmers out of business. Or and to then suicide. They go hungry. Yeah, and, and, so and, and I'm, I'm sorry to have interrupted, but the thought to think of all these farmers in India and elsewhere committing suicide because we're shipping our grain, which deplaces replaces their ability to exist in their own community, or they're expected to export their food when their own local community doesn't have enough. You know, that's absolutely right. So, I mean, um, India was always sort of touted back in the 1970s as, oh, the, the starving people of India, um, you know, they have these famines and we've got to send them our grains. And then we've got to send them our technology so they can feed themselves using our technology. And so the condition on India for accepting food aid was they had to accept our technologies. They had to buy our seeds, our fertilizers. They had to take out credit to, to buy tractors and all this stuff. Well, the thing was, when these famines were going on in India, India was exporting grain. Mm -hmm. It was not a problem of scarcity. So what happens is that you get tremendous, as farmers go bankrupt, larger farmers buy them up. And you get tremendous, tremendous consolidation in the farm sector. And so then we have these huge, huge farms, which are, you know, too big to fail. And, you know, to, to make an analogy with Wall Street. 
and they're continuing to concentrate. Right now, we're losing family farms. We're losing the middle. Um, we have an increase in enormous mega farms, big plantations, big CAFOs, and we have an increase in these tiny, tiny um, farms, uh, sort of a new peasantry in the yeah. U.S., of yeah. people who are farming but who can't make a living at it and um, are basically, you know, sort of the, the farming underclass. And you see a lot of young folks trying to get into farming and, and um, doing a lot of, there's a lot of uh, urban farming and what's going on on these very, very, very small farms. That's the sector that's growing as well as the, the very large sector. But we're losing our family farms, mm-hmm. our smaller farms. We certainly have in America. I mean, it used to be everybody had a garden, everybody had a pantry, and then, you know, the 24-7 grocery stores and everything nicely wrapped in plastic changed all that. So when we look at this reality that you're describing, Eric, of that we don't lack the resources and we don't even lack the intelligence, what we lack is the political and social will. As I often comment, we have this, you know, will will to rule or will to power, but not the will to serve. And um how how does this get changed? Talk to us about I know there's there's definitely movements, you know, fighting against GMOs. And that was their whole big thing. Oh, yeah, we can give you this poison food and it's going to feed more people. And we now know that none of that was true. And it was all about making money and nothing to do with the welfare of the world. India has been fighting that. Talk to us a bit about the resistance to this corporatized control over local economies. Well, the resistance is happening all around the world, and it's happening in this country as well. Um, and that is that people don't want to lose their livelihoods. People don't want to go into greater and greater debt. People don't, farmers don't necessarily want to overproduce, but structurally they're forced to. You know, we used to have in this country and in other places around the world, we used to have um, mechanisms which controlled overproduction. We had supply management. Um, we had marketing boards. We had grain reserves. You know, with the grain reserve, you can um, buy up grain when the price is too low and, and make it a little more dear, you know, create a little bit of scarcity. And when the price is too high, you can release grain. Mm-hmm. Then you have a, a nice, stable price. That's what farmers like. Well, but speculators and grain companies don't like that at all. Grain companies and speculators like a lot of volatility, volatility, and they also like um, very low grain prices. They want to buy things on the cheap. And so then what happens is we have to come along behind and, um, you know, provide subsidies, which are passed along to, you know, the input companies. Well, that model of production has spread around the world. Um, And for a very simple reason, you know, Farmers in the United States and Europe absorbed all they could of these new technologies and these new seeds and the fertilizers and the pesticides. And so those companies had to look for new markets because these markets were saturated. Right. So for that, we're told, oh, these people are starving, so we've got to give them our new technology. When the new technology comes in, along with a lot of grain that's being dumped on their markets, and people resist. They hold. They try to hold on to their land. Farmers' organizations um, Pressure, try to pressure their governments to um, stop all this grain from coming in for, to establish uh, stable prices. Um, there are huge uh, land wars going on. And so 
what you have uh, around the world is we're seeing what we call the food sovereignty movement. And the food sovereignty movement is very interesting because food sovereignty is very different from food security. Mm -hmm. You know, we we invoke the term food security, food security, whenever we want to save somebody from hunger. You know, we're, we're going to give them food so they can be food secure. Well, you can be food secure in jail. And what food sovereignty means is not that, you know, you give me food and so I'm food secure. Food sovereignty means that we control our own food system. We control our food. We control the means of production for our food. And that's what makes us food secure. So basically, um, small farmers around the world began this movement. And there's an organization called La Via Campesina, which is um, at the head of the movement. La Via Campesina has uh, something, uh, several million farmers um, in its ranks. And this is what they are demanding. They're demanding control over the means of production. They want access to water. They want access to land. Um, they want uh, stable markets. Um, and so this is starting to spread very much in defiance of what we call the corporate food regime, which is basically what I've described, Right. which is this capitalist food regime, which is controlled by the big monopolies, the grain companies, the seed and fertilizer companies, the chemical companies, and we all know who they are, um, and who basically need to sell more and more and more products. You know, these are the companies that when a million, uh, a billion people were going hungry back in 2008, they were making record profits. Um, so they basically profit on people's hunger. Well, this is what the food sovereignty movement is fighting against. And if you look at the in the United States, um, sort of the homologue of the food, international food sovereignty movement is the farm justice movement in the U.S., and the farm justice movement is very interesting because they're talking about things we haven't heard of since um, the New Deal. Can you hold that thought? And we can start when we come back right there of the justice movement, farm justice movement. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm C.R. Lawn. And with 40 years experience in the garden and farm seed trade, I am a board member of the Open Source Seed Initiative, OSSI. You can learn more about our work to keep new seed varieties in the public domain at www.ossedes.org. You are listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. Our guest, if you're just joining us, is Dr. Eric Jimenez, and he is, um, I've learned of him through an Acres USA magazine article entitled The Agrarian Transition, acresusa.org. And Eric is the executive director of Food First, the Institute for Food and Development Policy, as well as the author of Can We Feed the World Without Destroying It? A Global Futures 2019 release. So before the break, Eric, you were beginning to, you had shared with us this issue of food sovereignty in this movement worldwide to appreciate that if people in their own countries and in their own regions can't control how they grow their food and have resource to water, etc., we end up with this global plantation system that is so destructive as we see today. And then you started to mention something called farm justice. Right. So um, farm justice is sort of the U.S. expression of the food sovereignty movement. Okay. And let's just recap quickly, please, um, because if we're talking about, you know, 
feeding the world, let's remember that we already produce one and a half times more than enough food to feed every man, woman, and child on the planet. People don't go hungry because there's not enough food. People go hungry because they can't afford the food which is being produced. And the hungriest people in the world are farmers and are people who work in the food system. In the U.S., that means farm workers, small farmers, people working in, in processing plants, and people working in, in restaurants have the highest levels of food insecurity. And the fancier the restaurant, the higher the level of food insecurity. So really at the core here of hunger and environmental de uh, destruction, which we'll get to in a minute, yeah. is not scarcity, but injustice. So um, farm justice is a, a growing movement here in the United States, which basically is based on the principles of equity and dignified farm livelihoods. The, the principle of parity in supply management is central to this. That basically, that means that um, farmers should be able to make a decent living. They shouldn't be perpetually in debt. They shouldn't be going bankrupt. They, shouldn't, they certainly shouldn't be going hungry. I was talking about farm justice yes, and the principles of farm justice. And one is parity. You know, and parity is a principle that go, harkens back to the turn of the last century uh, when we had the golden age of farming in the early 1900s. And that basically means that you can make a decent living at farming, that you get a price for your product, which is commensurate with the cost of production. Right. And a little bit more. So you make a decent living. That's all. Um, so we need that again. And it's very simple. You know, we don't have to be paying subsidies to farmers. You know, we don't have to be paying more taxes for all of this for the farm bill. Just pay farmers a fair price. Of course, the grain companies don't want that. But that's exactly what, what will get us out of this mess. Um, and the other thing is um, supply management, which is, no, you can't produce all you want. There are limits to how much you're going to be allowed to produce. Now, you get a fair price for that product but you can only produce so much of it. And that has to be based on um, environmental considerations on the farm. So to do that, we have to internalize the externalities. Right now, for example, um, no one's paying for the, 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 the CAFOs, the confined animal feedlot operations, are not paying for the destruction of the Chesapeake. They're not paying for the algal blooms and the huge red tides in, in the Gulf, the big dead zones in the Gulf. But that's essentially what's destroying our waterways. Right. So we have to internalize those externalities. So that's a beautiful expression, by the way. Yeah. You. You. Um, basically, if you destroy things, then you have to pay, and you get taxed. Right. And th this is this happens all over the world. I mean, you can't you can't just farm any way you want. You can't just contaminate the groundwater in the Netherlands, for example. They won't let you. <laughs> you. And so we shouldn't be able to do that here. And the other thing about farm justice is it's about radical social inclusion. So it's about in including um, women and people of color and immigrants into the farming system, where many of them are already and are, help are producing our food and are working on our farms and in the factories, and, 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 but are not making enough money and don't have um, you know, the work, workers' rights, essentially. Um, so it's about that type of radical social inclusion. And it's about public investment in rural areas. This is called the social wage. So the countryside should be a good place to live. 
you should we should have health, education, and and um, well being in the countryside, and that means that we have to invest in the countryside. That means society has to recognize sustainable agriculture as a social good, and this is especially important now because agriculture and the the food system produce up to forty percent of our greenhouse gases. Mm-hmm. So if we're really serious about ending global warming. And then we're going to have to start with agriculture. Which makes the most sense because it has the broadest stroke. Absolutely. And you think about the last time we went through a similar crisis like this was the Great Depression. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt started with agriculture. Um, And, you know, there were sweeping uh, social programs in the countryside. And all across the country, you know, we have the Civilian Conservation Corps, put people back to work. We have have the Agricultural Adjustment Act, which uh, controlled overproduction. We have the Federal Surplus Commodities Corporation, which gave food to poor people. We have the Soil Conservation Service, you know, and on and on. We need, and and more importantly, we also have the Glass-Steagall Banking Act, which controlled the banks. And that's what we have to do again. So we've got it, we had... We've got to um, institute uh, antitrust, and we've got to control the banks, um, and then we have to pay farmers a fair price for their goods and control overproduction. And I think that will go a long way, not only to um, solving the problems of, of uh, hunger, but it'll solve, it'll solve many of the environmental problems we have, including global warming, because it will end overproduction, which is behind most of this. And one of the things we've done some shows over the last 30 years, uh, you know, about the an amount of water and land resource used to raise cattle so that beef can be consumed at levels that are just so unhealthy for everybody, the consumer, the animals, the planet, our resources. And when I used to do shows um, through Cesar Chavez's organization back in the 80s and 90s about farm justice and the fact that all these migrant populations um, were used and abused, and as you point out, the most um, suffering of the community, which we see in their health depreciation from the pesticides and fertilizers they'd spray, et cetera. How, how has the migrant um, population changed in the last 40 years in terms of these large, in this country anyway, these large farms? Well, first of all, let's sort of recognize that if we didn't have immigrants, mo- from, mostly from Latin America, our food system would crash tomorrow. Absolutely true. Tomorrow. It's, it's over. So we rely heavily on their labor. And their labor is exploited in more ways than one. And yes, the, the um, demographics of that migrant population has changed over the last half century, you know, since World War II. Um, but many things have remained the same. So we get these workers into the United States and, you know, we haven't paid for their upbringing, for their training, for their schooling. I mean, we, they come in um, at working age um, and we get that free. So all of the social investment in a workforce is lost 
to the countries of Latin America. Yeah. And we reap that subsidy. So we get a subsidized labor force because it's, we don't have to pay for its formation. And then we don't, we don't, because they are illegal, we pay them wages which they can't live on and get away with it. And, you know, there are plenty of very good farmers out there who don't do that. I want to make that very clear. You know, in the general, there are very good family farmers out there who <laughs> sometimes make a lot less than their workers, um, which is also unfair. They shouldn't be making, they shouldn't be living hand to mouth. But basically, when you look at the whole industrial food system, from the CAFOs through the processors, um, right on into the restaurants, this is all exploited labor. And so that means that the wealth that this labor produces, they only get to keep a very, very small part and not enough even to give them to, to make them food secure. They're food insecure. So um, this has been true, you know, since this country was founded. But in particular, you know, starting with World War II, we imported um, hundreds of thousands of, of Mexican workers with the Bracero program. You know, the United States would not have been able to fight the war had it not been for Mexican peasants who came and picked our crops and worked in our fields. Um, and afterwards, you know, we thought, well, that's a great idea. Let's just let's just keep them here, but let's um, not allow them to immigrate. And so they can't ever um, try to enforce their labor rights. Mm -hmm. They can't ever organize. Mm -hmm. they, they, they have to be underground all the time. And, you know, there were several amnesties, one under Ronald Reagan, ironically enough. Yeah. Right now, we're at this we're at a point where, you know, we've got 12 million immigrants in this country doing most of the farm work, doing a lot of the construction and a lot of the jobs no one else wants to do in the, in the hospitality industry and in, in the back of the house, the restaurants and whatnot, particularly in, in the food system and in the processing plants and whatnot. And um they're the ones that keep this going. So I think that immigration and inclusion is a very important part of farm justice. So if farmers are paid a fair price, and then they can pay workers a fair price. And if workers are paid a fair price, then they have more money to consume. It's good for the economy. Everybody does better that way, except for the monopolies. Right. So it basically comes down to the corporatists, the international monopolies controlling the food system of the world for their own benefit at the at the loss of the nations, the people, our natural resources, our planetary stability. That sounds That's so people say, oh, God, you're just making such a sweeping generalization. But you've taken this apart and your organization Food First, Institute for Food and Development Policy, has really, I mean, the way you've just articulated it to me and to all of our listeners, I'm thinking, well, golly, that's so clear. Yeah. No, we are um, in a, a catastrophic situation. And um, you see these uh, movements, these people's movements, rural movements around the country, I mean, around the world. Yeah. And, and the food movement in this country and the farm justice movement and the food justice movement um, are pushing back against these monopolies and against, you know, these um, the free trade regime, which has basically uh, permitted the monopolization 
of everything, the privatization of everything, and continues to promote this highly destructive overproduction in which we not only do we use up all our water and, and, and all our resources and contaminate our resources, it's also leading us to global warming and to a situation where, um, you know, human life and society, civilization is going to be impossible. And there was a there was a study. Um, it's about ten years ago, actually called by the World Bank, um, called the International Assessment of Agri Agricultural Science and Technology uh, for Development. And you know, the study was like a, th a three year study. They had about three hundred scientists in it. And after they 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 looked into the food system all around the world, and the conclusion they came to was that the world. The way the world grows its food, the way the world grows its food, will have to change radically to better serve the poor and the hungry if we're to cope with the growing population and climate change while avoiding social breakdown and environmental collapse. Mm. Underwritten, so, underwritten by the global seed corporations. <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, and of course, the World Bank just shelved that study when yeah. it came up with those conclusions. Um and, you know, a lot of people look at these, particularly in the U.S., you know, this, we have this very bright, vibrant, you know, food movement. We've got, um, you know, a lot of urban agriculture and we've got community supported agriculture, CSAs, organic agriculture is growing. Um, we have farm to school programs. You know, it's really pretty exciting. It is. People pushing back against all of this. And people say, well, you know, um, we're trying to fix a broken food system. And while I appreciate the, the sentiment and I understand where it comes from, I don't think the food system is broken at all. The food system isn't broken. It's working precisely as a capitalist food system is supposed to work. It overproduces. It concentrates wealth and power, power in the hands of a few monopolies. And it offloads all the externalities onto everybody else. So we can't really fix this food system by just voting with our fork and eating by our values, though we should do that. We actually have to change the rules. We have to change the rules of the corporate food regime. We're going to take a break on that note. When we return more with our guest, Dr. Eric Jimenez. Hello, I'm Eric Asadorian. I'm a sustainability researcher and Gaian philosopher. Join me at Gaianism.org. That's G-A-I-A-N-I-S-M.org. And you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. Can We Feed the World Without Destroying It? A 2019 release by Global Futures. So you, you make clear, I think, in a beautifully concise way, and you've put it in this quote, how we produce and consume determines how our society is organized, but how we organize socially and politically can also determine how we produce and consume. And so the perspective and the understanding that you shared with us is that an agrarian change and a focus can really solve the majority of the problems that we describe as insurmountable. Absolutely, so. Um, you know, I think that the, the first thing to realize is that we have a capitalist food system. So it's going to act the way capitalism acts. You know, it's not a socialist food system or an anarchist food system. It's a capitalist food system. And we know some things about capitalism. And especially when we go back to the 1920s, um, we can see just how our, our food and farming system and the capitalist system inter interacted in a way 
which first almost brought this country down and then with the New Deal um, reconstructed it. So we had we've had now 40 years of what we call liberalization. And by that, I mean liberalization of the market. We've had these free market policies and we've taken all restrictions off the financial sector, the banking sector, the monopolies. They can get as big as they want and can consolidate it as they want. Right. This is a period of liberalization. This is just like the Roaring Twenties. This is what happened back in the Roaring Twenties. Tremendous amounts of wealth are concentrated. And then you get a big crash, like the stock market crash of 1929, which sent us into a depression. And so then one has to introduce reforms. And Roosevelt did. And that's where we got the New Deal. Well, we're in the same situation today in which we've had stock market crashes um, certainly the privatization of everything has led us to, um, you know, more hunger, more destruction, global warming, and these, these huge monopolies that are controlling our society. Um, what we need are reforms. So we really need to move into a reformist period. And you see um, initiatives like the, the Green New Deal coming out. Um, those are pushing for reforms, and they're quite mild considering the reforms of the of the 1930s. Yeah. What's but what's stopping it? Why why aren't we coming into a reformist period? We're still in this neoliberal period, and um, we still don't um, implement our antitrust laws. For example, we still don't control overproduction. Um, what's what's happening? And the difference is that we need what. Um, is called a counter-movement. So back in the 30s, you had a counter-movement against liberalization. You had people took to the streets. People organized in unions. The farmers' unions were extremely powerful back then. And, and parity was on the political agenda. Um, candidates had to talk about it. And uh, Henry Wallace, of course, is the, probably the most uh, famous champion of, of parity. And he was vice president. And so um, basically what we need is a strong, um, integrated, widespread social movement to, in, to force reforms onto the reformists. Even FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, used to say that. He said, that sounds like a great idea, like a great idea. Now go out there and make me do it. Well, that's what we have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the problem for farmers is that, you know, back then, they were a third of the population. Right. Less than 2%. They have no political power. And so that means the farmers have to build alliances. And that's what's very exciting about the food movement is that it is um, so multifaceted. Mm-hmm. With, and it's led largely by people of color, those who are most negatively affected by the food system are the ones standing up to build a different food system. So what we really need are the, all these folks who are coming out with all these great practical solutions to food insecurity and um, environmental and environmental destruction um, to come together and not only keep doing the right thing, you know, keep keep doing the organic farming, keep keep doing the urban gardening, keep doing the CSAs, the farm. All that stuff is great, but we have to change the rules. Yeah. And so to change the rules, you need powerful social movements that can create political will to change those rules. So I think it's a very exciting time now 
um, in the food movement because we're beginning to see these sorts of alliances in order to change the rules. By, by calling for parity, by calling for antitrust, those are changing the rules. Um, and so we've got to get the practices right and we've got to get the rules right if we really want to introduce the reforms that we need. So I think that um, we see very, um, very exciting and, and important moves in this direction, but it really is just the beginning. And are there parts of the world you can point to and say, I mean, I always end up finding myself in the Scandinavian countries when I ask this question in any, in any area of change. Is there a part of the world who is doing this well and we can say, look, it works? Well, there are parts of the world that do parts of it well. Okay. And the Scandinavian countries are a good example. You know, I mean, uh, um, Norway, for example, the, um, the farmer's union has a monopoly on the milk industry. So, you know, in Norway, you can have, 10, you can have 15, 20 cows uh, and you make a good living. Right. Because you have a guaranteed price. Right. And there's a very high social wage because um, all medical is free. All education is free. I mean, you know, so you don't have to pay all these things. So, um, you know, that's an that's an example. And um, I'll give you another example. You know, a big problem is that land is commodified. And so it's going to the highest bidder now. And right. we, have, we have these huge land grabs and that people are speculating with land. And because markets are financialized around the world, um, you know, your mortgage is being bought and sold thousands of times a second all around the all around the world. Um, well, the time horizon for an investor is seconds, and the time horizon for a farmer has to be generations. Mm -hmm. So we have to decommodify land. Well, where has that happened? Well, I'll tell you, Cuba. In Cuba, you can't just buy and sell land. In fact, Cuba, land is free and available to anybody who wants to farm. You get 20 hectares, and you farm that well, you want another 20, you get another 20. Um, well, the biggest barrier to new farmers in this country is they can't afford the land. Right. So we need land reform in this country. And not just land reform, we need agrarian reform. Because we have to change the conditions in the countryside, not just access to land. So, and there are many ways that this could happen through, um, you know, land trusts, which are subsidized by the government. And I mean, there's all kinds of formulas that can be used. Or as I argued 20 years ago, there really should be green investment banks. You know, I'd, inv I'd put my money into a green bank that only That's loaned money to things that were really discernibly good for the earth. I would definitely do that. Absolutely. I've never been able to find a banker who sees the wisdom of it. I said this was, I mean, maybe I was, again, too far ahead of the curve. Maybe somebody now sees the wisdom of it. Well, we absolutely do need regional banks and local banks. And, um, and, and they're the ones who can, can do a lot of this lending. Exactly. So to, we need to start building alliances. And I think one of the most important alliances that we can build today is between the climate justice movement, the food justice movement, and the farm justice movement. Mm -hmm. Because farming and food is so integral um, to climate change, and because we need to reach out to people who live in cities in order to build these alliances, um, there are plenty of people who care deeply about the climate and with whom we need to build alliances. So I think this is um, the areas where if you're interested in 
fair food, if you're interested in good food, if you're interested in healthy food um, for everybody, that means we need to build alliances with folks in the climate justice system, in the climate justice movement, I'm sorry, yeah. uh, in order to be able to change the rules for our food and farming system. Yeah. Now, you, you have such a beautiful way of articulating something that is extremely complicated for most people to understand because our education is so perverted about it. Um, and you do such an exquisite job, really, I think, of making it clear to anybody that this is doable and we're not suffering from lack of food. We're suffering from an arrangement that is equitable and sustainable. Absolutely. And so, you know, because the, the propaganda machine, you know, yeah. constantly drums the same mantra into our heads yeah. about scarcity and um, has done this for well over half a century, um, it really is the the solutions are sometimes counterintuitive. So, you know, radio show programs like yours are very important because we have to begin to re-educate ourselves about how the system actually works so we can find the ways out. Well, you've and done we a beautiful have... job. I do have to say goodbye. We're up against the clock here. Thank you so much, Dr. Eric Holt-Jimenez.